Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, for Oak Hill Bible Church and for every man and woman in this room this morning, this family of God that you've assembled, Lord, by faith in Jesus Christ. I thank you for their, their love for you. I thank you, Father, for their, their love and concern for Annette and I and for the, um, for the others who lead at this church, Father, the elders. I thank you, Father, for their, their longstanding faithfulness to the mission you've given us. And, Father, I thank you for their efforts in serving you. And, Lord, I ask that you would uh, just give us all a renewed and increased heart that wants to serve you in the days that remain. In our own way, in our own place of life, wherever you've put us, we all serve in some respect, Father. And that's uh, all in keeping with your spirit and, and how he directs us. We know that. Uh, and now I'll ask, Father, you, you bring us together so that three chords are a lot stronger than one, and you'd use us in that way, Father, to, to um, lift heavier burdens for your sake, for the sake of your glory. And uh, direct us in where that needs to happen, Father. Meanwhile, we're still being prepared for that work even now as we study in your word. And I ask, Lord, that as we study this morning, uh, our hearts would be stirred. I mean, we'd be given things to think about and new desires and new initiatives, perhaps, while at the same time addressing those aspects of our life that are just not in keeping with your will. And uh, we'd, uh, we'd free those encumbrances, Father, so that we're in a better place to serve you as well. Let your, work, let your word do all that work in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, I want you to have your Bibles open if you can this morning, and you can turn them on or you can open them, whatever is appropriate, because we will be moving around in some places as we study Ruth again this morning, and I think it would be helpful if you had a chance to follow me. I'll be reading the verses as you know, but it's sometimes good to see them. Last week, we spent most of our time introducing the structure and the character of this book, and we did that by reading verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. I want to reread those verses this morning, not because we're going to go through old territory, but because we're going to go through some new things that still build on these same verses in this same passage. So let's begin there. Chapter 1 again, verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephraites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Oprah. Uh, You know, it's too easy, isn't it? Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. So that's a review, as you know. And as we saw last week, this beautiful love story revolves around a single Jewish family in the time of Judges. You have a man, his wife, and his two sons, and they flee a famine in the land of Judah. That famine we studied last week was a result of God's judgment on the land for the nation's sin under their covenant. And the family is escaping the famine because, in a sense, they're trying to escape God's judgment, fleeing into the land of Israel's enemies. But as we said last week, you can't run to escape God's authority. And so during those years that they spend in Moab, the father and then later the two sons die, leaving behind the mother and the two daughters-in-law who had married those sons while they were in Moab. So now you have all these three women, all now widows, all destitute, living in the land of Israel's enemies. Now, during the introduction of our story last week, we also learned that the book of Ruth contains additional layers of meaning. Embedded in our story is another lesson or story picturing 
Jesus as Israel's Redeemer. And that's the one many of us are very familiar with when we've studied Ruth perhaps in the past. But then I told you last week, there's also a third story embedded here in the pages of the book of Ruth. A story of end times. A story that says how the Lord will bring this age to its conclusion. In fact, let's take a moment to understand pictures in general. This is maybe a good opportunity for that to be a topic. A picture. When I've said the word before, maybe you didn't know exactly what I meant. But a picture in scripture is a prophetic story that uses the characters and the circumstances of some narrative in the Bible to represent another set of characters and events from the future. So you have one character in the story standing for another character, a future character. One set of circumstances that actually represent future set of circumstances. And scripture is literally filled with these kinds of pictures. You see them all throughout the Bible. For example, Jesus told us that the story of Noah is to be understood also as a picture of how the world will come to its end ultimately. We get that in Matthew 24. Or you may know the story of Moses holding up the bronze serpent on the staff. Jesus tells us in John's Gospel that that's a picture of Jesus being lifted up on the cross. Or Abraham taking Isaac to the top of the mountain to be sacrificed. We're told later that that is a picture of Jesus being sacrificed by the Father on the cross. Or, for that matter, the Passover lamb is a picture of Jesus being sacrificed. I mean, you get the point, right? In fact, all the Jewish feasts, all seven of them, are pictures of events that relate to either Jesus' first coming or his second coming. And this goes on and on and on. I don't know of a book of the Bible that does not contain vivid pictures in this respect. That begs the question, then, why does the Lord embed or create these pictures within other stories of the Bible? Well, at least two reasons that I can think of. First, because they teach us about the meaning of those events. You see a picture behind the events of some story long ago and you come to understand, like for example with Passover, you come to understand that there's something being foreshadowed. There's a bigger story that needs to be understood. It's not just about Israel getting out of Egypt. It's about us getting out of sin. About getting out of the judgment for sin. These things start to take on broader understanding when we see the pictures properly, right? Secondly, pictures are evidence of the sovereignty of God. When he moves through the events of history in such a way that he can orchestrate the movements of people and kings and armies and whole nations so that at the end of it all they create this little drama for us that their very life becomes a symbol of things yet to come. Well, who can look at that and not stand back and say, Oh my goodness, is there anything God can't do? Is there anything not under his control? I mean, if he can move the armies of Egypt in such a way that as people pass through the Red Sea, you have a picture of baptism. And as he comes into the the land of Midian and stands at the mountain, you have a picture of covenants being made in the future from a Christ that they haven't even seen revealed yet. I mean, all of these things tell us that there is not a circumstance of life that is not under God's control. His sovereignty becomes self-evident. Unequivocally, everything exists to serve him. And it confirms for us the trustworthiness of the Word of God. For if something was written thousands of years ago, but yet had in it pictures of things that are unfolding in years to come, clearly that's not just random written word by different people who might have all been somehow assembled together by chance. That's clearly God at work from beginning to end. The majesty of His power just starts to become self-evident when you look at pictures in Scripture. So with that background, let's go back to chapter 1 for a minute. But we're not going to go back to the story that we started last week. Instead, let's start a different story this morning. 
Like our first story, our second story begins with a wife and with a husband. But in this story, the wife's name is Israel. And the husband's name is Jehovah. And this husband, as you know, is no ordinary man. In Scripture, God often describes himself as the husband of Israel. And conversely, he describes Israel as his wife, spiritually speaking. And I'll give you one passage. This is where flipping around in your Bible starts to become helpful. This is in Isaiah. So if you want to turn while I'm reading, Isaiah 54. And I'll be in 54 verses 4 through 8. As I said, you don't have to, but it's helpful if you'd like to follow. So in Isaiah 54, 4, speaking to Israel, we hear the prophet saying this, Fear not, for you will not be put to shame, and do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced, but you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Now, this is just one example, and I picked it because it's so clear. There's certainly many others we could turn to out of the Old Testament, where you see the Lord comparing Israel to be his wife, and he calls himself her husband. But notice, interestingly, what he says to her in this passage. The Lord says that Israel is like a wife who has been rejected by her husband, at least for a time. He's referring to the way that in the culture of this time, if a wife did something particularly egregious to her husband, like fooled around, for example... The punishment that might be merited out is the husband might kick her out of the house for a time, temporarily, as a just punishment for taking on that kind of sin. And in that culture, this is a real punishment. If a wife was set outside her home, she had no provision, she had no protector, she had no way to care for herself. It was a very desperate thing for a husband to do to a woman and would only have been done, if it was being done fairly, under the worst of circumstances, like when she has an adulterous affair, for example. The Lord is referring to this practice and using it to reference what he did to Israel when Israel rejected the Lord by forsaking the covenant and worshiping idols. In fact, elsewhere in Scripture, God describes Israel's willingness to worship idols as a kind of spiritual adultery against him. And so he's saying to her, you're like a wife who's been forsaken by her husband because of what you've done, but then he reassures her in that passage that he won't leave her outside forever. He will gather her back at some point. And this is the pattern, by the way, you see in some ways within the book of Judges we just studied. Israel would go through a period of of idolatry, and then God would bring them under a period of justice, of punishment, and then eventually he would bring them back, right? But what's even more interesting is, notice what the Lord says in that passage. He speaks about a time in Israel's history when the Lord, in disciplining Israel, will make her like a widow. Did you catch that? He, He refers to her widowhood. The Lord forsook Israel, in this case, because of her sin, making her like a wife grieved in spirit as if without a husband. And that's one of the classic ways the Bible describes disobedient Israel whenever that's the topic. It speaks of her being set aside in widowhood, as it were, away from her husband, forsaken, without the Lord's blessing. Never permanently, never to her destruction, but it's a way of describing his response. And so now, in Ruth, we have this second story, as I'm calling it today, 
And this second story is telling us what the Lord does to his disobedient wife as a result of her sin against him. Last week we learned that the Lord brings famine and drought to the land of Israel. He said he would do that to them if they disobeyed the covenant. He promised them that in Deuteronomy. But the Lord does a lot more than just bring famine when Israel disobeys. Go to Leviticus for me for a second. Leviticus 26. And we're building to something here, as you can tell, so it's going to take a little while to get there. In Leviticus 26, this is in the law, in the covenant given to Israel, God spells out to Israel what would happen to them if they fail to keep the covenant. And I want you to take note of some of the things in Leviticus 26, starting in verse 14. Look at some of the things the Lord says would happen to Israel were they to be disobedient. He says, But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments... If indeed you reject my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly for your enemies will eat it up. Jump to verse 19. I will also break down your pride of power. I will also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. Verse 22. I will let loose among you the beasts of the field, which will bereave you of your children and destroy your cattle and reduce your numbers so that your, uh, so that your roads lie deserted. And then verse 38. But you will perish among the nations and your enemy's land will consume you. So those of you who may be left will rot away because of their iniquity in the lands of your enemies. And also because of the iniquities of their forefathers, they will rot away with them. Now the Lord tells Israel in that chapter that if they fail to keep all his commandments, then he's going to bring a series of devastating curses on them. Specifically, he says, I'm just going to list some of what we read. He's going to weaken them in several ways. He says, I'm going to consume them. I'm going to cause you to waste away. I'm going to bring wasting diseases, drain away your life, make your sky like iron and the earth like bronze. That's a reference to the drought, to famine and drought. He says, I'm going to rob you of your children. I'm going to make them fewer in number. Notice where they're going to perish. Among the nations, that is among Gentiles, they're going to rot away in the land of their enemies. Do you recognize that pattern? Think back for a moment to the names of the characters from our opening lesson in Ruth. We have, for example, Elimelech, the husband. His name means God of the king. And then you have Naomi, the wife. Her name means lovely, as in lovely Jewish wife. And they live in the time of judges, we know, a time marked by Israel's disobedience, a time in which the Lord brought drought and famine, and that famine resulted in scattering them into the land of their enemies. So while they're in the land, what happened to them? Well, the family begins to waste away. It reduces in number. Their children are taken from them. Soon Naomi's without a husband. She's a widow. Her sons, Malon and Chilion, they die as well. And interestingly, the name Mahon means sick, weak, and afflicted. I don't know what mom was thinking, but that's what she called him. And the name Chilion means pining, destruction, consumption, failing. Those words ringing any bells? You see, friends, these names foreshadow their lives in Moab. They succumb to weakness. They died while in the land of their enemies. The circumstances of this little family in the book of Ruth closely parallel the promises that the father spoke to Israel, his bride, 
under the very same circumstances. Just as Leviticus promised, the sons of Israel, the sons of Elimelech in this case, are wasting away during their exile, being reduced in number. And so what we're learning is that the events of Ruth are not only telling the story of this one family, it's also prophetically picturing how God deals with his disobedient wife, Israel. And each of these characters now takes on an identity in that second story, in that prophetic story. So the story of Ruth is a story in which the Lord is explaining that these events were necessary as a result of a wife's disobedience to her husband. Not Naomi's disobedience to Elimelech, but Israel's disobedience to Jehovah. Now, it's one thing for me to draw a simple connection between Jewish characters in this story and Jewish people as a whole, or the Lord, etc. That's one thing. But it's a whole nother thing for me to suggest that even the smallest details in the lives of these people in this story hold important prophetic meaning. But yet, that's exactly the case. The prophetic connections in the book of Ruth go far beyond the meanings of these names or the identity of these characters. Let me show you what I mean. I want to draw your attention to a little word at the end of verse 4 in Ruth. The end of verse 4, you find the word about in the phrase about 10 years. Now that word in Hebrew is ke, ke, means about. But friends, scripture is, is careful to tell us that Naomi was in the land of Moab for about 10 years. And the Bible is never inexact. It's not as though the writer of the book of Ruth didn't quite know how long they were there and he had to estimate. Every Hebrew or Greek word, as it were in the New Testament, in the original manuscripts from which we have our translation, every single word is carefully chosen by the Spirit of God for a specific purpose and meaning, and that is true even in the case of this little phrase, about ten years. So when you see the author use the term about ten years, it's not because he didn't know the exact date, it's because the word about is important to understanding something in the story. And here's what it means. As I'm sure many of you know, numbers in Scripture have symbolic meaning in the way that God uses them repeatedly. God orchestrates events in the world to align with certain numbers, like he created the world in seven days and not some other number because the number seven was important to him, and so on. Now, that's not to say numbers aren't also literal. That is to say, it is the case that everything we can see was made in only six days plus a seventh day for rest. It is literally true, but then on top of that, there is symbolic meaning that God is communicating to us through the selection of the date or the time or the number of days, etc., He does that to supply us with an important clue so that we can understand his purpose a little better. Those who might suggest that six days for creation is way too short and very unrealistic and nothing but a myth, they're asking the wrong question. They're asking how could it have been done so fast. That's the wrong question. The right question is why did God take so long? Because if he could do it at all, he could have done it like that. But he purposely chose to take six days to do something. That's telling us something. The fact that he took seven is meaningful. We're supposed to understand something from that number. So by observing the pattern of how God uses numbers in Scripture carefully, we can begin to pick up on the meaning of numbers by just noticing how God is consistently using numbers. Here's what you can learn. I'll run through the first ten numbers for you. There's a little background. The number one means God's sovereignty. The number two means division. The number three means the Godhead. The number four means the earth. You know, so we have four winds, four compass directions. Fours are reflected in the earth. Five means grace. Six means fallen or sinful man. Seven means perfect or complete. God's number for 100% is seven. Eight means new beginning. On the eighth day, you have a new week. On the eighth day, you're circumcised. Nine means judgment. 
And ten is the number of testimony, that is, testifying to God, testifying to His faithfulness, testifying of something. So let's take a closer look at that verse again in chapter 1 of Ruth, verse 4. Naomi and her family are living in Moab about ten years. Now, that means they've been there at least nine, right? You wouldn't say about ten if it was less than nine. So they've been there at least nine, but they haven't quite reached the tenth year, or you would have just said ten years. It's about ten. It's between nine and ten. Therefore, saying about ten years is a way of saying we're leaving a period of judgment and we're preparing to enter a time of testimony. Naomi's family has endured a time of judgment in Moab because they fled a famine during a time of judges, a time of sinfulness. God left them there for nine years to communicate sovereignly that his purpose in their exile was a time of judgment. Now, at the beginning or near the beginning of the tenth year, circumstances change and a transition is beginning. This period of God's judgment is coming to an end and it's going to give way now for this remnant of the family, this remnant of Naomi's family, to return to their land. And in that return will come a time of testimony to God's faithfulness to this family. And that year is about to begin. This also, of course, pictures something bigger, as we've already studied, our second story. This is a picture of how the husband Jehovah and his wife Israel will proceed after a time of judgment. Just as Naomi's period of judgment transitions into a time of testimony, so will Israel's time of exile outside her land eventually give way to a time of testimony as God faithfully returns Israel to where he once had her. And to understand that transition a little, we need to first understand how Israel became forsaken by her husband. And this will be a very brief review of how we get to the same moment in the story of Israel that we've reached in the story of Ruth. That is, Israel at the end of a time of judgment and at a preparation of time for testimony. So we're going to begin that back in the law again in Deuteronomy. Briefly in Deuteronomy 28. Look at what the Lord promises He would do for Israel when they disobeyed. We studied some of this last week when we looked at what he said about famine, but famine was just the tip of the iceberg. Look what God has promised to Israel in Deuteronomy 28, verses 62 through 66. This is after a bunch of bad stuff's already been said, by the way. He gets to 62 and he says, Then you shall be left few in number. Sound familiar? Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, because you did not obey the Lord your God. It shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you. And you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, that is, all Gentiles, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. Among those nations you shall find no rest, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul. So your life shall hang in doubt before you, and you will be in dread night and day, and shall have no assurance of your life. Pretty dramatic, isn't it? But that's what God said to Israel, even before they entered into the land, telling them in advance that as they sinned against him, there would be severe consequences for his people. This began to take place over a series of steps, the fulfillment of this. You may know it began with Assyria. Assyria came in and took a number of the tribes away in the northern kingdom and dispersed them into the lands of the Gentiles. It reached its next step for the rest of Israel in 605 B.C. when the Babylonians came in and took the remaining tribes of Israel out of the land and took them captive 
in the years that followed, they were able to return. And they were there when Jesus came in the first century. But after the first century, in AD 70, or in the first century, in AD 70, we reach the point, the final dramatic moment, when God fulfills Deuteronomy 28 and scatters his people outward into all the nations. Jesus warned the Jews when he was walking the earth about this coming judgment, about the fact that there would be this time when God would scatter his people. You can read that in Luke 21. Jesus says this, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Jesus gave those who would listen in his day the clue to know when this final judgment, this final scattering would happen to the people and how they could avoid it if they would believe in his word. Jesus said, he said, these will be days of vengeance when what is written is fulfilled. He's referring to Deuteronomy 28. He's referring back to the fulfilling of what Moses said would happen to the people of Israel for their disobedience. And then he says, once they're scattered, what Deuteronomy goes on to say is, once they're scattered, then all the rest of the curses will follow as well. The wasting away, the reducing in number, and so on. Friends, that's the history of Israel. You know, the Jewish people have been the most persecuted people on earth since the days that they came under Gentile authority, back in Jesus' day and prior. And that continues on to today. They continue to be scattered. They continue to be under the times of the Gentiles, as Jesus referred to it. They continue to be persecuted. Not to their destruction, not to their end, but to the purposes of God, the fulfilling of what God has in his plan for the church as well as for Israel. But just like Naomi, this time of wandering in judgment among the nations will transition to a period of regathering of Israel in preparation for a new testimony of God's faithfulness. And I'm sure many of you probably know when we saw this period of transition begin in the nation of Israel. A hundred years ago, if we were having this conversation, we would be saying, it's still nine, and we don't know how long before we get to ten, so to speak. But in 1948, miraculously, God opened the door for Israel to come back onto the world scene as a nation and people to be able to regather in that land. And ever since 1948, the return of Jews into their land has continued unabated. And it's even accelerated in recent decades. That is the beginning of the transition. The comparable moment in God's prophetic plan for Israel that you see happening here in Ruth. God told them this would happen. In Ezekiel chapter 20, listen to what Ezekiel says concerning the future for Israel. Ezekiel 20:33. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. Verse 36, As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass into the rod. I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Notice he keeps talking about a time of judgment. He says, I scattered you and surely I'll bring you back. But when I bring you back, it's going to be, he says here, with wrath poured out. Under a time of judgment. I love the phrase, I will make you to pass under the rod. As a parent, you should know what that means. Even if you don't use one, as a child, you should know what that means. 
Not that you necessarily use one, but the point is clear. It's a time of like parental discipline. He's speaking here about how he's going to move Israel out of a period of judgment into a time of testimony right before he delivers the kingdom to them that he's promised. But it won't come easy. He's going to have to purge, it says, the rebels. Those who transgress against him will not be allowed to come into the kingdom. They're going to be removed from the equation. But Israel must first go through a period of purification, of being purified, beginning with their regathering. And friends, we are among those in this privileged generation of believers to see these things beginning to play out. Things spoken of thousands of years ago are actually starting to transpire before our very eyes. It's as if we were in the story of Ruth watching that poor pitiful family coming out of Moab and beginning to move back into Israel. That's what we're now watching prophetically. We're watching that in the nation of Israel. In Ezekiel 36, verse 17, he says this, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land, because they had defiled it with their idols. I also scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, They profane my holy name, because it was said of them, These are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. If the Lord were to wait for someone in Israel to have a heart to follow him, he would have been waiting a very long time, an eternity. So he says... I will, for my own namesake, which is a way of saying, in keeping with my promises so that history will judge me to be faithful to my word, I will one day, by my own hand, take Israel and regather them, not because they've become holy overnight, but because I'm doing what I said I was going to do. I'm going to bring them into the land, and as we read earlier, with wrath poured out, I'm going to purify them, bring them to the point so that they can have the things I promised, and bring to conclusion all of these events. This is the love of a God who is dealing with a stubborn and disobedient idolatrous people. So that's where our second story is headed. Israel in exile for the past two millennia. Less than a hundred years ago, that nation began to regather into her land. That regathering is our sign to know they're now moving out of a period of judgment into a time of testimony, just as Ezekiel 20 and Ezekiel 36 promised. Speaking in the Bible's language of numbers, it's been about 10 years for Israel, figuratively speaking. She's had much despair and much misery for her years of wandering, and yet judgment's giving way now to testimony, or soon to give way. Now, we've only scratched the surface of our second story, and we still have the whole first story yet to pursue as well. So next week, we're going to return to the story of Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. We're going to see where they go now that they've faced this moment of destitution in the land of their enemies, what draws them back, how they proceed. And then, of course, as we watch those events unfold, we'll continue to examine how those events picture a prophetic story of what God is preparing to do with Israel. Before this story is out, we will watch prophetically how God will take Israel, redeem her, and bring her into the kingdom to come. All of that is pictured And, of course, we're in this story, too.
for the kingdom is not just a kingdom of Jews. It is a Jewish kingdom that brings in a whole set of nations of Gentiles, you and I. And yes, we're in the story too. We're pictured as well by the characters of this story. That's where we're going to be going in future weeks. Father, thank you, Lord, for the, for the message of uh, Ruth. Thank you, Lord, for the pictures that you put in Scripture. We have such great confidence to put our trust in the word that you've given us because uh, we see clearly your hand at work in having put it together, not just in the writing of it, but, Father, also in the events of it. And, Father, if you can orchestrate people and nations and armies from long ago in the way that you've clearly done, then our lives, Father, must be a simple matter for you. Let us remember that as we concern ourselves with the frustrations of life and the worries and those things that we can't seem to get our head around at times and keep us awake at night. Let us rest, Father, knowing that you've got it under control. No matter what comes against us, Father, it won't change where we go in eternity. It can't change who we are in Christ. And if so, then there must be good purpose in it, whatever that thing is. And I pray, Lord, as we... As we live our life in service to you, that we're thinking boldly about how to serve a God who has so much under his control and that we're, we're not resting in fear, but we're resting in peace, knowing that nothing that happens isn't a part of your plan. Let those things begin to change us in, in the right they're intended, Father, even as we study this simple story of a family who lived long ago. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.